We have been going through some of the parables of Jesus from Luke's Gospel, and today we've come to the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can find it in Luke chapter 10, which is page 1042 in your Pew Bibles. So that's page 1042 and Luke chapter 10. We'll begin reading at verse 25. And so we hear God's word. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go. And do likewise. And this is God's word. Amen. If it's uh, handy to have Luke chapter 10, 25 through to 37 open. One of the dangers I think about uh, those of us who've grown up in church is that we know these stories. Um, Or maybe I should rephrase that. One of the dangers for those of us who've been read Bible stories from our mother's knee, is that we think we know these stories. On one occasion, an expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, a Jew was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he finds a man who had fallen into the hands of robbers lying at the side of the road. He'd been stripped of his clothes, beaten, and left half dead. 
Upon closer inspection, the Jewish man sees that this man is a Samaritan. Nevertheless, he alights from his donkey, bandages up his wounds, and takes him to an inn. Who is my neighbor? Why, even an enemy like a Samaritan is your neighbor if he is in need. That's the way we might have told the story. Or maybe that's the way we suppose Jesus told the story. And the lawyer and us would have been wrong. And both of us would have been left unmoved. But Jesus, you see, is a far more wise counselor than any of us. He reverses the expected role of the characters in this parable. He puts the Jew with whom the lawyer could identify as the one dying on the road, and along along comes a hated Samaritan who helps. What does the Jew need from the Samaritan? Help, of course. And to everybody's surprise, the Samaritan stops and shows mercy. In a sense, Jesus is asking, who was a neighbor to you? And the only response he can possibly give is my enemy, the Samaritan. How then would I want other people to treat me? And the answer is the way I would want to be treated. Well then, says Jesus, go and do as you would receive. Gracious Lord, as we turn to your word, shake our complacency so that instead of being know-alls, we might become care-alls. And what we ask is for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the things I had never noticed before until preparing for this morning was the context of this text. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is interrupted. We know from the previous chapter, chapter 9, verse 51, that he was en route from Galilee to Jerusalem where he would die for our sins. And in order to shorten the journey, he sent messengers on ahead, verse 52, who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him to stay. Instead of uh, having to go all the way uh, to Jerusalem via the Jordan Valley, it would have been much more convenient to travel through Samaria. But, verse 53, when the people there heard he was heading to Jerusalem, they said, no way, he's not welcome here. And they told Jesus' messengers to clear off. Well, when the disciples of Jesus, James and John, the sons of thunder, heard this, they were outraged and asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Even as Elijah did all those years against the prophets of Baal, do you want Uh, God to destroy them, but Jesus rebuked them, and they went to another village. Jesus and his disciples had not been welcomed in Samaritan territory, but now in this very next chapter, chapter 10, verse 25, we are told that he is interrupted on his Jerusalem uh, journey by an expert 
in the law. That is a Jewish lawyer who stood up to test Jesus. Rabbi, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Usually, if somebody wanted to learn from their master, they would sit, sit at his feet. But this high-powered theologian was not wanting to learn. He was wanting to test Jesus, and that's why he stood. In other words, he was lording it over Jesus. Every teacher knows when they are being asked genuine or hostile questions. Uh, this past week, you may have seen that technology entrepreneur Elon Musk vetoed what he called bonehead questions during Tesla's latest earnings call. And uh, Martin Luther, uh, who we learned about a couple of Sunday nights ago, uh, was once uh, asked by an aggressive opponent what God was doing before he made the world, to which Luther replied, retorted, he was making hell for people like you who ask questions like that. <laughs> well, <laughs> instead of being tested by Jesus, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. It was an aggressive question, verse 29, and Jesus knew that it wasn't an, a genuine inquiry, but, but one that had come to trick him. And so Jesus plays him at his own game. You're an expert in the law. You tell me, what is written there? How do you read it? And the answer the lawyer gave was the right response, using quotations both from the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. He answered with the words of what are called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you ever go to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall in Jerusalem today, you will see Orthodox Jewish people with a wee black box strapped to their foreheads and another one tied around their wrists. That's a phylactery containing these very words, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. As a reminder about how they should think and how they should act. All right, says Jesus, do that, and you will live. Love God first, love your neighbor next. Right answer. But in verse 39, 29, we see that that wasn't clarity enough for this expert in the law, but who he asked is my neighbor. That was a very good question then, and it's a very good question now. Then the standard answered, my neighbor is somebody just like me. But Jesus wanted the Jewish lawyer to see that the Scriptures actually require those who follow the Lord Jesus to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you. How up to date is that for us? Think South Armagh as jeering people kicked and punched and covered with paint two wanted paedophiles, while 100 people stood by and watched with apparent consent and total approval. 
Or if South Armagh is too difficult for us to identify with, think North Down and that 16-year-old being set upon with prolonged and vicious attack on Bangor Pier with those images shared online with countless teenagers. Who is my neighbor? Somebody just like me? Or somebody in need, not like me? What must I do, verse 25, as the expert in the law, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, of course, you can't do anything to inherit anything. By the very nature of inheritance, it's not something you can earn. It is a gift. And so that's why Jesus tells this story, where the Samaritan is the hero, to show that what he did for this Jewish man who had been robbed, stripped, beaten, and left half dead was an act of pure and undeserved grace. The Samaritan didn't have to stop. In fact, it would have been much more convenient and a whole lot safer if he hadn't stopped. And yet, in spite of considerable cost to himself, the Samaritan saw, verse 33, he took pity, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, and then, as if that were not sufficient, he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and personally took care of him before paying the innkeeper for services rendered with the promise of more to come once the man had recuperated. This is a story of unmerited, pure grace. Now, if the Samaritan is the hero of this story, not the expert in the law, not that he could actually acknowledge that, you see in verse 30, 37, the word Samaritan was just too much a problem for him to actually verbalize. If the one who had mercy upon the man set upon was the hero of this story, who is the person the good Samaritan is pointing to? And it's Jesus, of course. Jesus is the one who, in an inconvenient detour, risks his life. Jesus is the one who does not count the cost. Jesus is the one who rescues us from our great need and lifts us up and out of our trespasses and sins. Jesus is the one who gets his hands dirty and puts us in his place. Jesus is the one who gives us time and all at great price to himself. Jesus is the one who demonstrates his love and advocacy for those in need. Jesus is the one who goes all the way to the cross, not for people just like him, but for people not like him. For it was while we were yet sinners, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anybody die for a righteous man, although for a good person someone might 
possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. So if that is the extent to which God has loved us, if that is how Christ, the ultimate good Samaritan, has demonstrated his outrageous grace towards us, saving us from certain eternal death and suffering, how can we as his recipients of this incredible great goodness not in turn choose to extend what we have first received to other people in need? and especially towards those that nobody else stands up for, those who are not like us. Now, what does that look like for you? What does that mean for me? What are the implications for us as the people of God? Well, as we close, let me speculate for a moment with a few random thoughts, and in postulating, perhaps something will make sense and might actually work itself out for us in practice this coming week. Thought number one. John, one of the sons of thunder, who in Luke chapter 9 wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy the Samaritans, having experienced the promiscuous and lavish sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, went on to write these words in his first letter, chapter 4. If anybody says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anybody who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So, outworking number one, being a good Samaritan to another person in need is the way how those who belong to Jesus Christ visibly express our love for God. That's the first thing. The way we demonstrate our love for God is by caring for other people. being a good Samaritan is practical and costly. The story which Jesus told required more than putting a few bob in a charity bucket at the supermarket checkout. It literally involved getting hands dirty. In other words, there is no such thing as an aloof or sanitized good Samaritan. And I know that for many of you, the outworking of your Christian faith means literally getting your hands dirty, cleaning homes, making dinners, cutting hedges, playing football, getting down on your knees with infants, caring for special needs children and elderly people, giving up your time at youth club or walkway Sundays. Now, I know that unseen acts of kindness such as these are not exclusive to the Christian community, but they are sure and certain outworkings of people who have been impacted 
by the practical and costly love of Jesus. So don't get weary in well-doing. Someone once said to the 18th century American theologian Jonathan Edwards, I can't afford to care for the poor. To which Edwards replied, we are obliged to care until we suffer ourselves. So being a good Samaritan is how we visibly express the love of God which we have first received. And being a good Samaritan is both practical and costly. And lastly, being a good Samaritan is not the way we gain heaven, but rather having gained heaven, this is how we ought to live. In Luke chapter 10, the expert in the law asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, no amount of doing can inherit anything. But having already inherited the riches of Christ by the merits of Christ, those who have been redeemed by His precious blood are in turn compelled to love as He loved us. To love not the lovely, but the unloved. Not the people like me, but people unlike me. Not those we already call our friends, but those who are yet to become our friends. Not the righteous, but those who will not experience righteousness apart from what they experience. Not the worthy, but those that are needy. Being a good Samaritan is not the way to gain heaven. Rather, having gained heaven, this is how we ought to live. Now, what will that look like for you and for me today and during this coming week? I have absolutely no idea Do you know something? I'm both excited and a wee bit frightened to find out. We pray together. Heavenly Father, our default position is to stay well within our natural comfort zone, to keep our hands clean, to stay out of harm's way. We don't want to get waylaid or caught up in something that disturbs our schedule or upsets our preset plans. But your word refuses to let us remain complacent. Will you therefore grant us eyes to see people not like us who are in need? Refugees, people from other religious or ethnic backgrounds to our own. Women and men who are vulnerable, poor or lonely. Those who do not share our faith 
our sexuality, our outlook. Dear God, we do not know what looking out for our neighbor will look like this coming week. But we're both a little excited and anxious to find out. Because Jesus tells us this is part and parcel of what it is to be his disciple. So help us please care a little less about our own discomfort, even less what other people might think of us. But instead enable us in the strength which he provides to go and do likewise. And what we ask is for the glory of our Saviour.